Luke 2, uh, the only story of the childhood of Jesus, as a matter of fact. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read it and own it and understand it and immerse ourselves in it. And we pray that today, as we spend these next few minutes unpacking this passage, we pray that you give John the wisdom of words. You pray that you give all of us the ability to hear and to absorb. We pray that your spirit would give us an encounter with you through your word. We ask that you would speak, because we're your servants and we are listening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Mike. And so, uh, if you were able to see the live stream last week's Snow Day, the, the prequel to it all was John chapter 6. Jesus says something difficult that we'll get into, I think, in two weeks, about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Disciples are going away, and Jesus says to Peter, do you too, and his disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says, where else do we have to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so this series is kind of drawing on some of the difficult things that Jesus has to say to people and asking ourselves the question, are we going to trust? Are we going to pay attention to what he says? And the whole premise behind the series is if we claim to follow Christ, if we call ourselves Christians, then we need the entirety of Jesus. It's kind of like uh, getting into a marriage, and um, if you've ever done such a thing, you are committing yourself to the entirety of the person. And there's this beauty and mystery within marriage that you don't ever fully know a person, right? Stanley Hauerwas says, marriage being the enormous thing that it is, uh, it never leaves us the same. Therefore, the difficult task of marriage is learning to fall in love with the stranger to whom you find yourself married. That's Stanley Hauerwas. But we commit ourselves entirely to a person. And you learn things along the way, and that's true with Christ. If we claim to follow him, then we want the entirety of Jesus. And if we want the entirety of Jesus, then we need to know what he says Easy, beautiful, encouraging things, and difficult, pressing things that would hone us and shape us a little bit more. There's questions he asks, there's statements he makes, there's challenges he gives us that can befuddle. 
So think, what do you do when you come across those passages? Where do you go when you find yourselves challenged by Jesus? You go to Scripture, Community, Still Small Voice, Podcasts. There's really two main highways that people take, and that is the one of avoidance or obedience. Either we come across something that Jesus says that we don't like or agree with, and we avoid, we ignore, we hedge, we push away, we argue, we kind of do, uh, if you're familiar with the Thomas Jefferson Bible, he just went through and was like, oh, there's a miracle, I don't believe in that, and he cut it out. Oh, there's another miracle, I don't like that, and he just would razor blade out within his Bible the sections that he didn't like. And many of us, perhaps we uh, don't have the dedication of Thomas Jefferson to take an actual razor blade to our actual Bibles, but we do that mentally, we do that relationally, we do that in all sorts of different ways of just being like, yeah, I don't like that, I'll just keep it over there. Ignore it. Or we can be challenged, honed, and shaped, and sent by the Creator. The the options leave us with either attempting to be holistically formed by Christ, that is the entirety of our person, mind, body, soul, spirit, everything in us, or we, this phrase probably exists, I don't know if somebody coined it, they get the credit, uh, but it came to my mind, we we get a Franken-Christ, just kind of a, a Jesus of our own creation. And in some ways, all of us do that because we're human, in a place, in a time. But, but the, the call is to go away from Christ in our own formation to what the scripture would give us as a whole. Church Father Augustine, or Augustine, tomato, tomato, he says, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. And so you go, well, how does one know if I'm worshiping, you know, Franken-Christ or going towards a more holistic formation. Anne Lamott, the author, is helpful. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) And where we're going is not looking to eliminate questions or doubts. We'll get to that. But we're, we're picking a path. This series, we're, we're going to cover a smattering of the hard sayings of Jesus and the implications of it today. And on this day, uh, because I get to a little bit set the series, and it is given before the elders, and so it's not like I'm just, this is what I want to teach on. There's, you know, mutual submission, but I am going a little bit easy on myself. And I picked tweenage Jesus. As Mike said, it's the only story that we have of Christ between the birth narratives up to about two years old, the flight to Egypt and all that, in his adulthood. We get this snapshot of 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. And what we're going to do is look at the text and then have three ponderings on the end from it. So Luke, the doctor historian, is writing an account to a gentleman named Theophilus, giving an account of all Jesus did and said he is going around as a historian collecting uh, the stories and happenings of Christ from multiple sources. Mary is believed to be one of the main sources of Luke's account, and he's doing a couple things particularly in this text. The first is this. Luke is going to great lengths to show the dedication of Jesus's family to the way of Yahweh. 
He's showing that uh, Jesus and his family weren't just some um, backwoods family that creates some sort of cult in the Middle East. He's showing them as being followers of this long Jewish tradition of going to the temple, of taking part in the story, of participating in the life of God's people. It's not as though, um, gosh, and I hate to rip on small towns, but they're uh, coming out of, I don't know, it's farther, none of you are from there, I think, Seligman, and going, hey, I got an idea for a new religion, and it's going to be against this and for this, and it's, it's not that. It's not the creation of some newfangled, hobcobbled cult, but they're deeply entrenched in the history and story of Yahweh God and the practices therein. And the second thing that Luke is doing is he's showing the humanity of Jesus as a boy, as an almost teenager, but showing there's something more to this kid that he also, spoiler alert, is Messiah. And so Jesus is 12. The family go to Jerusalem as custom, again showing this was a regular part of their lives at Passover. And there must have been a larger group that was caravanning together there because as they go out from Jerusalem, he stays in the temple and they get, it's believed, about a marathon's distance away from the temple, an entire day walking. Normal walk is about three miles an hour. You go for about 10 hours. That gets you with some water breaks, you know, they got their electrolytes and they're doing their thing and there's some kids involved probably 20 to 25 miles outside of the city and all of a sudden they go, shoot, we lost the savior of the world. Now, in my own personal story, not to make this about me, but... uh, In kindergarten, my mom left me at Sunsplash. So this may be the most Christ-like thing about me. (laughs) Is that I too was left behind and lost as a child. Again, I said that might be. Where did the creator and savior of the universe go? And so, again, if you... Think about this. My mom just went to the gas station with the youth group, and I was wandering around Sunsplash in the arcade. It was probably only 30 minutes. It felt like five hours. And as you can tell, I turned out all right, guys. Uh, But they are far, far away. They have to then walk all the way back. So first day, they walk out. They sleep. Second day, they come back. They sleep, and so on the third day, they find themselves in the temple, and there is Jesus. Again, this is shocking if you know any 12-year-olds. He's listening, he's asking questions, and he's answering with wisdom. And so there's like high-level, yes, Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, mainly, you know, cross-resurrection, that's big things. And then there's like low-key, well, that's something. It's not everything, not compelling enough. But, but to see and say this about a 12-year-old listening, asking, and having wisdom, hmm, let's see where this story goes. 
Here's a kid with some promise. In, in one of Luke's favorite words that he uses uh, 13 times in his gospel account, five times throughout Acts, is this amazement, wonder, awe. There's this, whoa, this Jesus is something in someone else. But then there's this concern, rightly so, that his family has, and Mary asks him, why did you treat us so? Which Kind of separate topic. Uh, if you know me, you know I've been on a long crusade against the song Mary Did You Know uh, around Christmas time. Um, but this account gives some credence to the song Mary Did You Know. It's clear throughout the gospel accounts she didn't understand. Yes, the angel told her this and that, but she, like everybody else, was seeing this unfold in a way that wasn't necessarily exactly how she had scripted or at least thought it out. So Mary, did you know? Kinda. Maybe sort of, not really completely, totally. But that doesn't have quite the same ring as Mary, did you know? Um, and so you can imagine Mary there being like, why did you stick around? And Joseph being like, yeah, we were really worried about you. And this is where, at least I'm drawing a hard saying out of Jesus's response. Why were you looking for me? And then this, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And beyond that, we don't get anything besides them not understanding the saying that he speaks and then he goes with them, comes to Nazareth, he's submissive to them, and Mary treasures up all of these things. Mary ponders these things within her heart. And then Jesus grows in 52 in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. And then if you fast forward into, you know, you get a count of John the Baptist, and then Jesus enters the scene 18-ish years later. But I can imagine, you know, Jesus' response, why were you looking for me? And I mean, like, you're a kid. And if I'm Joseph, I'm like, wait till we get out of this temple. You're going to get a talking to. There's going to be another hundred miles of you hearing it from me, son. You want to talk to your mother like that in front of the people in the temple. We, again, speculation. All speculation. But it's striking because in this account we see uh, what is often the case with Jesus then and now, it's that what he is up to is not necessarily what we would expect. Why is that? Because Jesus is always about the will of the Father. And we are not always in tune with that frequency. We, we are not always in line, to use the language of Paul, we are not always in step with his spirit. But Jesus is always perpetually 100% of the time. Did you not know? Well, if they knew what Jesus was up to, they would know that he is up to the will of the Father. If you weren't aware, God's plan and ours are not, or often, I, I don't know the percentages on these things, they are not often in alignment. And for that realignment, what's called for is a change in our own heart perspective. And the word for that would be repentance, if it's sin, or just realignment, if it's not a sin issue. 
but we often don't understand what God is up to. One of the, the most famous passages in the Old Testament is that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. And we can use that for a lot of things, mentally and, and within our own stories, but the, the entirety of this text in Isaiah 55 is speaking about the compassion and the kindness and the welcome of God for broken people. It's not going to be on the screens. Uh, it's a longer one. You can turn there if you want, but I figured it would be helpful to read the entirety of Isaiah 55 to just get an understanding of God's heart for humanities and his thoughts not being our thoughts, his ways not being our ways. Listen to this invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know, you shall run, shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And then listen, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. If you want a really beautiful explanation of that passage, you can look at uh, Dane Ortland's best-selling book, Gentle and Lowly. He has a chapter on Isaiah 55, just showing the, the unexpected compassion and care and love and patience and kindness of God for people that come to him. He is a God that invites us, all the entirety of us, to him to be reshaped and realigned within his word, within his will, within his way today. That is this God. He's there, he's available, and what it calls for is trust. Brendan Manning in his book Ruthless Trust says, I can state unequivocally that childlike surrender and trust is the defining spirit of authentic discipleship. 
And I would add that the supreme need in most of our lives is often the most overlooked, namely the need for the uncompromising trust in the love of God. Proverbs 3, 6, 3, 5, and 6. One of the first memory verses that I learned as a kid. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Going back to Luke 2, for Jesus' family and for followers today, we don't understand what Jesus is up to because of our preconceived notions of who he is and what he's going to do. And Luke shows this here in chapter 2 by saying and putting in kind of that, that explainer in verse 50, they did not understand. That's another theme throughout Luke's gospel. You see that about the town of Nazareth as a whole, that they didn't understand. You see that about his own disciples and kind of their density time and time again, where they just don't get it. You see that after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus as he's speaking with those disciples and they do not understand at all what's going on. And in this first account, they don't get it. But Mary ponders it. And Jesus grows into something beautiful and mysterious, this Messiah. And again, isn't it puzzling that there's an 18-year gap from Jesus at 12 to Jesus it's estimated around 30 years old and you just get nothing. Nothing. What was he up to? Speculation? Well, Joseph's a carpenter and you'd father, follow in your father's footsteps and so Jesus was out there making tables and chairs and, you know, out on the lathe and sanding and doing whatever, making furniture. I, we don't know. But the beginning of worship and wisdom is a kind of attention, awe, and awareness of him. I don't know who first said it, but attention is the most basic form of love. And somebody else, what we pay attention to expands. And so I believe the call within this series and within our lives today is to pay attention to Jesus, to all of Jesus. And what you begin to see is he is so much more beautiful and better than our preconceived notions of what we have and what's been given to us. It's kind of buzzword over the last, I don't know, five or so years within church life has been that of deconstruction. The idea that people, uh, mainly my demographic and a little bit younger-ish, are have gone through and seen uh, abuse within the church, have seen um, misuse of funds, misuse of power, misuse of all sorts of different things. And as a result, people look again at the story and go, meh, I don't like it, and kind of deconstruct it. And some rebuild some different version of faith or um, go through and leave the faith altogether. There's all sorts of uh, polls and pundits and people that are, you know, freaking out and saying, well, it's because of this, it's that. It's, and there's no one thing. Every story's individual. But what I found myself going through in seeing that and living enough life now, again, not as old as Anthony, but as you can tell, I'm getting there, is that often 
uh, are always, people are broken and flawed. And the version of Jesus that they gave me is not always in line with the gospel. And the version of Jesus that I give to others is not always within and in line with the gospel. And what every single church and every single group of disciples are called to do is line all of that up with the truth and entirety of Scripture. And what you see is, yes, if you have gone through and experienced abuse spiritually or within a church setting, there is right call to deconstruct that. Where did it go wrong? What checks and balances weren't in place? Where was that not in line with Scripture? And it's painful. It's heart-wrenching. It is so horrible to go through again and again and again people that you knew, loved, and trust that that shipwreck their lives or end up being too fake. Like, that's a terrible experience that many of us have gone through. But what that can be for us is a uh, refining-type moment for our faith that we come to God within it and see Isaiah 55 of God isn't like this pastor or this person or this pundit or this political party. God isn't like that. He doesn't fit within our own construct and box. He's so much bigger and more beautiful. But what can often happen for a variety of reasons is we just go, well, that hurt, I'm gonna move along my own path rather than taking that hurt within the context of community in the entirety of Scripture. And Jesus' question has been ringing out for me here where he goes, did you not know? Did you not know? And the answer, when I'm honest, is yeah, I I had no clue. (laughs) I I didn't know at all. I, I thought one thing, but I was so wrong. Did you not know? Within this story, I believe in this series as a whole, that's going to be the call again and again. It's a call to trust Jesus. Trust the entirety of his story and what he says and who he is. And I think from this passage, there's uh, three little gleanings that I want to take and then I'll uh, get out your way and we can respond. The first is this, uh, the pattern of Passover. Why was Passover instituted and observe. Jesus' family is coming to the temple at the feast of the Passover. If you look at the Exodus narrative, they're trusting God through the sacrifice of a lamb to be spared. That's the pattern of Passover for God's people that they would observe year after year after year. They're remembering the Exodus account where God rescued his people through the blood of a lamb that was shed put up on the doorpost. Where else do we see the pattern of Passover in the gospel? Well, you see it later if you fast forward to the Lord's Supper being instituted during the time of Passover for a new covenant and ultimately that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And so the the Jewish and the Christian tradition together together through Passover tell us that this faith is not a faith simply for quote-unquote good people. It's not about good people getting through or getting in. That's not what this faith is about. It's about faith that people place in a Savior. 
there's a little clip that's been going around the last couple weeks on Twitter of D.A. Carson, uh, who's a theologian. He gave a sermon where he gives this three-minute account of uh, two Jews around the time of Passover talking to one another. And the main driving point behind his sermon was that it was not the quality of faith in, for God's people that saved them. It was simply the object of their faith. And so he tells the story of one guy that's like, oh yeah, didn't you hear? And he's got this robust faith and this big trust in God. And the other's like, well, I, I, I hope so. And he's like, well, didn't you put the blood on the post? And he, well, yeah, sure I did. And he goes, well, which one did God save? Both. Because faith isn't about the quality of it. It's about the object of the, that we place our faith in. And so within the pattern of Passover, we see this theme that we cannot save ourselves, that there are no quote-unquote good people, that we're, we're broken in need of healing, we're sinners in need of grace, we're, we're scattered in needing of wholeness, and Jesus gives that. And it's not about ultimately the amount of faith. Jesus gives a parable about a mustard seed amount of faith but it is ultimately the object of our faith. The second observation is this movement that happens in Luke's gospel and can happen in our own hearts from awe to, because it's another word that starts with an A, antipathy. It alliterates, and that's for you, Mike, and only you. From awe, awe to antipathy. You got it? Cool. Yeah. It's memorable. But this movement from, like, wonder to I don't like it. And you see within the temple this slow but subtle movement over these years that it's not all the same people, but it's some people in the temple who would eventually plot the death of Jesus. How does that happen? Well, for more alliteration, awe moves to agitation, which then moves to accusal. Mike, I'm looking at you. I see your hand. God bless you. And then ultimately, antipathy. And it's a question we have to ask ourselves, what happens when we don't line up with Jesus or Jesus doesn't line up with us? What happens then? When I want to do a thing, I have a tendency and it is not in line with the word and way of God. What happens then? Well, again, I can avoid that or I can obey. And for many of us and throughout history, we like Jesus until he doesn't line up with us. And we can be like Mary to ponder these things, which doesn't mean every question's answered, which doesn't mean that it all makes perfect logical sense, or we push away. So what do you do with your questions? What do you do with your doubts? What do you do with your fears? What do you do with your life? We can either go about the slow but sweet work of growing in faith and knowledge of Jesus, or we can push away. I've got two, one extended quote and one short quote from Tim Keller, because he's really helpful on faith and doubt. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts. 
which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide the grounds for your belief to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. And just as important for our current situation, such a process will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to respect and understand those who doubt. And so Jesus, Jesus in line with Tim Keller, okay, I'm not, Scott, you're going to get me on that, because Anthony did the same thing, is he called Tim Keller Jesus, and he's not, it's not the same. I'm avoiding a a future conversation too late. (laughs) Tim Keller's saying doubt is a helpful part of our process, And, and Jesus is never asking for just blind faith. He's giving himself with it, his nail-scarred hands and feet inside. He's with us in that. And Tim Keller also says this, doubt your doubts. Be skeptical of your own skepticism. Why? Because you realize that you are not completely objective. And so we need both. We need the space to process our questions, our doubts, our, our hesitations within faith within God's word, within the story of Jesus, all of it. And there's space for that and time for that. And at the same time, we look in the mirror and we doubt our own doubts and we question our own skepticism and we go, where is this coming from and why is it here? And then finally, the necessity of proximity and the mystery of Christ. Jesus seeks presence and proximity with people. Then and today. How do we know what he's up to today? We get that from the gift of his spirit through and with the truth of his word. That there is this presence of Christ that is available for his people today through the power of his Holy Spirit that is available for every single one of his followers today. And that is how we are to be in step and in line with Jesus in the 21st century. And within that, there's this beautiful mystery that is not fully explainable with human words. That a triune God came, lived, died, rose, sends his spirit, saves, rescues, has eternity in his hands, is present yesterday, today, and forever, is unchanging, three in one, okay. And I don't say that blithely. I just go like, what? But within that, there's the deepest, most beautiful truth that God is with and for his people. That he is speaking, that he is changing, that he is transforming, that he is sending his people out in love. And my hope for us today and through this series is that we would find ourselves being formed by the person, the work, and the words of Jesus, that we would see the entirety of Jesus and he would be a part of the entirety of our lives. And so the path that we pick today and every day is that of who and what we are going to place our trust in, who and what we are going to be in proximity with.
And Jesus is still about his father's business. And the, the wonder of it all is his father's business is a, a matter of sending his people, you and me, out into this world to be his representatives, which is another sermon for another time. But that is the beauty and mystery of Christ today, that we can walk with him, talk with him, and he calls us his own, as the old hymn says. And in that, we are shaped, we are molded, and we are sent out in love. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your story, and we thank you that you are the God who is uh, merciful, gracious, you are slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you show that through all history, and you show that um, most of all in sending your Son. God, we confess that we often distort you and make you in our own image and ask uh, for you to reveal the ways in which we have done that. And you would, as you promised to, with kindness and compassion, with gentleness and care to shape us, to transform us, and then to send us out as more accurate representatives of your Son. And so here we are, God. Would you do that beautiful and difficult work in our hearts? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.